This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Each of the four boundless qualities gets us past our ego fixation and joins us with another in a way that brings right relationship. We can feel that rightness in joining when it happens. And as we know from neuroscience, that feeling registers in that ever popular left middle prefrontal lobe, a main locus of positive emotions. Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. In this postmodern world, we're more widely connected than ever before. You know, there's Facebook, Twitter, all these things. I've just been having WhatsApp conversations with my teacher who is literally across the world. I've been having other conversations with my kids who are at the other, on the other side of the continent. It's also kind of wonderful that we can think of a question and Google it, and we get all kinds of information about it. And I use that a lot, and I enjoy it. Also, when we meet somebody, there's kind of this weird thing that goes on where they may already know a lot about us before having actually met us. Maybe I'm just too old to appreciate that, but it, uh, it, it kind of weirds me out. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like, wait, can you get to know me just right now first? But anyway, that's how it is. We kind of all are in touch with each other in various ways. And it almost seems like there's this big hive group think. But then the question is, what about depth? What about deep, satisfying connection? How much of that do we have? I read an interesting study, which I don't remember the source of, so I'm really sorry about that. It was a fairly large study they did where people sat one-on-one and had a conversation either with their phone off but in view or their phone off and out of view. They self-reported as well as, uh, you know, there were other more objective factors, but even themselves they reported having a more satisfying conversation when the phone was out of sight. And I thought, well, actually that makes sense because if it's here and it's our window to the world and we do associate it with 
all these things we've seen through it. And it does feel to me like a window to the world. Then having that window to the world right there, even if it's not like flashing or whatever, it's still pulling my awareness, my consciousness, and I'm not as focused on the person in front of me. I'm making up that that's the reason why people reported that and why the scientists found that out uh, from other objective measures. Here's the thing. What if we could have really deep, satisfying connection and experience it widely? I mean, wouldn't we like to have both and? I mean, who doesn't want that, right? And what if there were time-tested, lab-tested methods for doing that? There are. Lucky us. And so a lot of us have done these practices that we're going to be looking at and practicing this weekend. They're often translated as the four immeasurables. I like the translation, the four boundless qualities. But in any case, there are four avenues for feeling our connection. And we start small. As a matter of fact, we start with ourselves. And then we step out just a little bit to the people we already love and care about and feel connected to. And then we just build and build and expand and expand until we feel that deep connection, but widely for everyone. What these practices do is to help us to build a capacity for um, such avenues of connection as loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. We just have one word in English, love, that can mean so many different things. I see some of you are good students and are writing that first thing down. It's very good. And the Theravadans call it metta, and some of you may have heard of metta. So this is a particular kind of love that's about... Um, feeling connection through just your affection and your care for another, wanting them to be happy, wanting them not to suffer, which comes naturally when you just feel um, affection and love and care for somebody. Of course, you don't want them to suffer and you want them to be happy. Feeling that kind of connection is one avenue in, one way in to this felt connection. Another avenue in is compassion. Compassion meaning feeling with. So yes, that's number two. I see some of you good students writing. (laughs) So that's a particular expression of uh, love, really, that when somebody's suffering, we suffer with them because it literally means feeling with, compassion. And again, this isn't just a passing feeling, a sentiment. It's a capacity. Now, the other side of the coin is the third boundless quality, sympathetic joy. If you're feeling along with somebody when they're suffering, then the flip side is feeling joy with them when they're happy. So that's the third avenue of connection. And then the last one, is actually, sort of spoiler alert, you're practicing this one with all the other ones. It's equanimity. And what I mean by that in this context, we feel equal amounts of 
loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy for everybody. We start again with ourselves. We step it out to those who it's easy to feel those things for. But again, to exercise that compassion muscle, for example, we continue stepping it out, out, out until it's all and everyone. And we want to feel that compassion just as strongly for everybody all the way out there as we do for the close-in ones. So equanimity is actually crucial if any of these is going to be immeasurable. It isn't going to be immeasurable love or boundless love if it's, you know, me and my friends and my family, right? That's, that's a boundary. <laughs> so this is beyond any boundary. And that does take some practice, especially with people who we find annoying or difficult or something like that, let's face it, or somebody who done us wrong. So we feel boundless compassion for everyone except Fred who did us wrong, right? That's that's not going to work. But how do we work with that? This is considered to be, you know, quite important in um, all of Buddhism. But so is loving kindness, of course. And they don't talk much about sympathetic joy. But when you've been doing lots and lots of compassion practice, it's kind of nice to then switch gears and do sympathetic joy and be happy with somebody, right? And then you ride this tide of happiness all the way out to all beings. I recommend that when you put these four boundless qualities into into your daily practice, that you change it up. You don't always do the same one. You may get stuck on a theme for a few days and that's just fine. But even in that one session, you may decide to change it up for whatever reason. So you have these four avenues to feel that deep connection. And you'll see what I mean, I think, uh, when we do the practice. And then step it out so you also feel it broadly. So again, depth and broad connection. This is uh, what these practices are designed to do. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the word bodhisattva and what that means. This is very important in all of Buddhism that um, we all want to be bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are people who um, feel that strong connection with everybody. They understand the reality that we are actually not separate. So a metaphor that I keep coming back to all the time um, that's a classic in Buddhism is ocean and waves. So Each of us is a wave on the ocean. Each of us is unique as that wave. And we're all ocean. We're not apart from ocean. But we all feel like, and you know, we perceive things like I'm this wave and then there's everybody else. And I don't even know if I can feel the depths of the ocean on, you know, an ongoing constant basis. Well, that's what, really all of the practices of Buddhism are designed to help you to do is to see reality as it really is, because we really are connected at the root. Now that you're all becoming experts at all of these boundless qualities, I want to talk about a little bit of fine-tuning. All of these are avenues for our feeling, our loving connectedness to all and everyone, right? However, there can be some mistakes that we can make in thinking that we're practicing one or another of 
these boundless qualities when actually it's not quite it. And so then those hours of practice are actually not going toward this loving connection that we're going for. It's actually worse than wasting time. We're uh, getting some bad habits of mind. So in Buddhism, they talk about near and far enemies. For example, um, the far enemy of loving kindness would be ill will, hatred, that sort of thing. That far enemy is pretty obvious. What's trickier is the near enemy. I wrote a little something about that in uh, one of my upcoming books in the series. So the book, Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling? I've decided to break into two books because it's kind of big and heavy. And a lot of people like are kind of daunted by that. They're already daunted by the idea of looking at Buddhism or Buddhist meditation or anything. So then to have this big, heavy book is even more daunting. It's also hard to take with you places. I discovered this. <laughs> so I decided to divide it in two. And there's a whole series I've planned to take you all the way from first being interested in meditation through the entire collection of practices called Wundro. So I have already divided um, Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling into two parts. And it kind of um, falls naturally into two halves anyway, because the first half is the context piece, and then the second half is the practices. Um, so I'm going to read to you from the manuscript for book three that has to do with the four boundless qualities. In working with the four boundless qualities, we need to take care not to detour into other drastically different states, accidentally cultivating them instead, or into the even more dangerous, apparently similar states. They will lead us away from our goal of feeling our connection with others rather than toward it. Buddhism refers to far enemies, opposite qualities, and near enemies, impostors that could still lead us away from connection. The Buddha spoke of both a near and far enemy for each of the boundless qualities, and there are some first cousins to those enemies that we might want to take a look at too. Each of the four boundless qualities gets us past our ego fixation and joins us with another in a way that brings right relationship. We can feel that rightness and joining when it happens. And as we know from neuroscience, that feeling registers in that ever-popular left-middle prefrontal lobe, a main locus of positive emotions. From a Buddhist point of view, it's bringing forth our Buddha nature by expanding that aspect of it that knows we're not separate. Again, the four boundless qualities bring forth that awareness through feeling, as opposed to some other practices like insight meditation. In insight meditation, we see how we're not separate, also important. And insight meditation dovetails perfectly with practices such as the boundless qualities. That's why we do them together in the round robin practice. The far enemy of a boundless quality is an opposite quality, which has an obvious separating effect, certainly an enemy to the goal of feeling joined with others. It's generally easier to catch ourselves falling into the far enemy than the near because the difference is so dramatic and obvious. Unless we're going out of our way to fool ourselves, it would be difficult to mistake a far enemy for its opposite boundless quality. We can get distracted, as ever, in our meditation and not notice it at first. But an emotion such as hate is 
pretty nasty looking once we're awake enough to notice. Of course, shamatha helps us to get better and better at catching such feelings earlier. A near enemy doesn't look so obviously nasty, so we might see it and mistake it for the boundless quality we're trying to practice. As Hamlet notes, the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. The near enemy, dressed up like a boundless quality, has a more subtle separating effect. This makes the near enemy more dangerous than the far because we can go on for hours and hours thinking we're cultivating a boundless quality and congratulating ourselves when in fact we're becoming more and more habituated to a separating quality of mind. Equanimity, near and far enemies. Let's start with equanimity. This seems distinct and clear enough. We practice equanimity to expand our feeling of warm, caring connection to all beings, equally strong for every one of them. Its far enemy is an equally clear opposite. It's the Buddhist classic, attraction aversion. In other words, preference, right? That's going to be the far enemy, preference. If we feel preference for some people over others, my brother, my friend, my ally, we're obviously not practicing equanimity. And if we're annoyed, angered, repulsed by some people, then we're obviously not practicing equanimity either. Of course, we all do feel preferences for some people over others. We feel attraction and love for some and aversion toward others. This just means that we're not Buddhas yet and we could do with some um, equanimity practice. The good news is that it's fairly obvious when we're feeling this far enemy, we're, well, far from equanimity. By definition, any of the boundless qualities and its far enemy can't coexist in our minds. They're opposites. So while we feel preference, we're clearly not feeling equanimity and vice versa. Sometimes in my psychotherapy practice, a client would insult or accuse me during a therapy session. I could handle it with equanimity. After the session, I didn't think about it again. Though I certainly cared about the person, I came to love every one of my clients. I wasn't feeling strong desire or aversion toward them. On the other hand, if a family member or enemy were to say the same thing, I might very well be hurt or furious. The incident would live on in my head, causing me consternation every time I thought about it. And if someone I'm especially close to does something particularly nice to me, I may feel more strongly motivated to nurture their well-being than I am the well-being of ones who insulted me. As we all know, love and hate are very close. Intense feelings towards someone who is a central figure in our mental and emotional landscape. In either case, feeling hate towards anyone or feeling love to the exclusion of and to the detriment of others would be in the territory of the far enemy of equanimity. It was the desire or aversion driving us to express our anger or our gratitude that brought on the loss of equanimity. Though this far enemy can be a real struggle to work with, its advantage is that at least it's obvious. Not so with equanimity's near enemy. If we consider its near enemy for a minute, I think you'll be able to remember seeing it mistaken for equanimity in both others and, yes, even yourself. The near enemy is less dramatic and less obvious. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. You can fall into it and stay there for a long time, rather smug that you're feeling equanimity, but you're not. Indifference is dressed in equanimity's clothing, 
but it feels different. It also has a different effect. I don't care is not the same as I care deeply, equally, and inclusively. Until his Christmas Eve epiphany, Ebenezer Scrooge treated everyone with equal indifference. He didn't care that it was Christmas. He didn't care that Tiny Tim was ill. He didn't care that his longtime business partner had died. He didn't care about the poor, but he wasn't practicing equanimity. That's still rather obvious, but there are much less obvious examples. How many times have you found yourself or others feeling pleased that you're not upset by the angst around them? Or perhaps in our equanimity practice, we notice we don't lean too far toward the people we prefer, congratulating ourselves in, that, in our restraint. But if we look closely, we might be practicing indifference rather than equanimity. The exercise has become theoretical and the feeling sense is lost altogether. Though it can look like equanimity, it serves to separate us from the objects of our indifference rather than join us in strong feelings of love. Let's take the practice of Donglin, for example. In this case, equanimity means feeling equally compassionate toward whomever we're thinking of. And as you'll recall, by the end of the practice, we're usually thinking quite inclusively. The word compassion itself from the Latin literally means to suffer with. When we start Donglin practice, we develop the strong, passionate desire to take away the loved one's suffering and to replace it with ultimate, lasting joy. The feeling is so strong that we're often in tears, though often smiling at the same time as we bring them ultimate, lasting happiness on the outbreath. Then we step that same compassionate feeling out to all beings, thus bringing compassion together with equanimity. This is what makes it a boundless, instead of measured with a boundary or limit quality. This is hardly indifference. But beware, because indifference can creep into your practice in all of the four boundless qualities, not just compassion. That is exactly why the Buddha emphasized this distinction. In order for any of the four boundless qualities to be truly beyond measure, we have to feel each of them intensely and without bias. That's why Rinpoche always tells us to practice equanimity first. Really, we apply it to all the boundless qualities while we're practicing them, stepping the rings out to include all sentient beings. That's why I begin close in to those for whom I can easily feel strongly. And that is the way we practice this traditionally as well. That primes the pump of caring and connection and helps protect me from falling into indifference. That allows my love and compassion to roll out strongly to all beings with equal force. My feeling of loving connection increasingly approaches boundless. Imagine if we all felt as much love and compassion for everyone as we do for our best friend. How would the world look? Really play that out in your mind a bit right now. So this afternoon, we're going to study loving kindness together. In Theravada Buddhism, they refer to this as metta, which is the Sanskrit for loving kindness. The Dalai Lama has said, my religion is kindness. It's interesting because, uh, as I mentioned last night, he could have been really concerned just for his own people. There he was, a refugee, um, having really nothing. 
And instead, he was thinking of everyone and uh, had loving kindness and compassion for everybody in the world. And as a result, everyone else naturally responded. And the last I knew, when they did a study on such things, he was the most loved person in the world. And that, despite the Chinese government's um, trying very hard to uh, put out propaganda against him. But the power of his wisdom and compassion and loving kindness was able to transcend that. And everybody could just feel who he was. I attended a workshop one time, a weekend workshop. And at the end of the workshop, all of the 300 people got a hug from him. It was actually more than 300. We all lined up and just one after another after another, he hugged every one of us. That's pretty amazing. Again, bodhisattvas are considered heroes. He's shown a lot of um, courage as well. You know the courage it takes when you sit on the cushion and do donglin and take on somebody's suffering. Yeah, that's not really what we automatically feel like doing. Yet we kind of stretch the envelope a little bit and do that. So what we're going to do um, this afternoon is stretch the envelope a little bit with loving kindness. I won't say too much about what the difference is between loving kindness and compassion. You'll be exploring that in your own experience. But I will say a little bit. Uh, in my experience, when I want to um, practice loving kindness, I just want to feel that affectionate uh, deep, loving connection. So I'm really focusing on that rather than so-and-so is suffering and I'm suffering along with them. Now, all of these four boundless qualities are connected to each other, of course. So we're going to see some parallels and connections and so on. It's more, what are we really tuning into with each of these um, practices? So in this case, we're really just focusing on that affectionate, loving connection. Now, out of that, naturally, will grow um, joy when they're happy and suffering with them when they're suffering. Loving kindness is a certain basic um, feeling of connection. Maybe that's why when they speak of the four boundless qualities, they generally start with loving kindness. They usually say love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. But as my teacher Tukusangak Rinpoche pointed out, um, really you can't practice any of the immeasurables without equanimity, or they won't be immeasurable. They'll have a boundary. They won't be boundless. It's only when you can truly practice with equanimity that then any of these qualities goes all the way out to everybody equally, with equal passion and power. So the simple way we practice this loving-kindness practice is, well, the, I feel that there are two aspects. One is uh, saying, starting with yourself, may I be safe, may I be well, may I be at peace, May I be joyful. Now, there are other ones. May I be free of fear. May I this, that, and the other. We can just take these four. Um, so you might want to write these down in case you can't think of other ones. May I be safe. May I be well. 
May I be at peace. May I be joyful. So safe, well, peaceful, joyful. At peace, if you will, joyful. Then as we step it out, of course, it's going to be, may you be safe, may you be well, may you be at peace, may you be joyful. I find, though, that anytime I just use words, it remains a little bit too much in my head. I like to visualize and feel this more because it's about feeling how we're not separate, right? Feeling that connection. So, yes, I say those phrases and I imagine, for example, when I start with myself, because it's inside my mind, I can hug myself and feel the joy of connection within myself. And nobody thinks I'm crazy because I'm just doing it in my mind. (laughs) You could do that too. And anyway, nobody here will think you're crazy. Um, And then, of course, we can step it out. And it can be to animals. It can be to people. And we can feel that close connection, that loving, affectionate connection. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNowToday to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow. And of course, then, we want to wish them all these good things, right? So both and. And I think uh, they each heighten each other and feed into each other. More Loving kindness, near and far enemies. The obvious opposite to loving kindness is hatred or its little brother, ill will. I hardly think you need an explanation of that one. Of course, the ability to dispense with ill will isn't as easy as recognizing it when you see it or feel it. But that's what the practice is for. The classic near enemy to loving kindness is sentimentality. Until my Buddhist training, I hadn't heard that. But as soon as I did, I realized, aha, that's exactly right. Somehow, we do know that while loving kindness joins us in right relationship with another, sentimentality subtly separates us. It's still more self-referential. And in the wave of sentimentality we bathe ourselves in, we've lost sight of the presumed object of our feelings, the other human being. They've become a screen for our own maudlin movie. I have a dear childhood friend who's very sentimental about everything, pretty constantly. She's afloat in a sea of sentimentality and revels in being carried about on its waves and tides. She's been an extremely loyal friend through the years. But when I talk to her of my life, and she swoons over some little thing I've mentioned, I don't feel her love for me. 
it doesn't feel like she's responding to me. And I find no satisfaction or sense of joining in talking to her about my circumstances. Sad but true. Instead, I feel like she's doing two things, using me to pat herself on the back for being a loving friend and indulging in surges of drama, using my story almost like a TV show. Using being the operative word. TV shows are meant to entertain the audience. That's kind of what I feel I provide for her. No wonder visits with her feel less than satisfying for me. I believe that if she practiced true loving kindness, she would feel much more satisfied too, because she would feel truly connected to her friend. Unfortunately, she's not able or even particularly willing to change this habit. I love her despite the sentimentality, not in response to loving kindness. Another near enemy is conditional love, a prevalent form of which desire clinging is easily and often mistaken for true love. The most popular arena for this little substitution is in romantic love. Especially during the first three years of relationship, huge loads of endorphins, the pleasure chemical in our brains, are produced. Many recreational drugs artificially trigger them, making them hard to resist and hard to abandon. Endorphins are the original high, and we can stimulate them naturally with new romantic love. Of course, we desire as much of that as we can get and cling to every opportunity. But even without the brain science, you probably knew that. As soon as I mentioned desire clinging being mistaken for love, I'm sure you can think of examples in your own life. In my early adult years, I was terribly guilty of this one. It wasn't even just the rush of the endorphins for me. On top of that, I was still looking for the lost warmth and closeness from my dad that I didn't get as much of as I wanted because he was working so much as I was growing up. Once that early stage of life passes, we can never fully make up for the missing critical pieces. That sure doesn't stop us from trying, though, again and again and again. Of course, we're never satisfied. And of course, the other person recoils from our clinginess. I saw this happen again and again in my own life, but I couldn't stop myself. At first, I didn't even realize that my very clinging was driving the person away. It's perhaps ironic that we all want to be needed, but we find neediness unappealing. Much later, I found myself at the other end of the stick. My boyfriend at that time, we'll call him Ralph, was extremely affectionate. But when we were with other people, if I looked at someone as they were talking to me, he'd go into a jealous sulk and afterward give me a long lecture about how I'd ignored and slighted him. When friends were visiting, he would sometimes literally pout in the corner. He hated my going on retreats and complained bitterly every time. If I traveled for work, he wanted to come with me, though there was no reason for him to come. If he had actually been feeling love, loving kindness love, he would have been very happy to see me doing retreat, which benefited me so deeply. As it was, I felt oppressed. As you might expect, I pulled away. Ralph's feelings toward me felt like attachment, not love. I felt like I was his stuffed animal. While he was sure he was intensely, deeply loving me, I felt he was practicing attachment with great fervor. Important warning for practicing this method. I'd mentioned before that we Westerners might need to start with loving kindness for ourselves. This too has a near enemy, self-centeredness. We've already got that one down. 
As I once heard someone remark wryly, I'm not much, but it's all I ever think about. But it's not the same as the universal, spacious, powerful, loving kindness that we've been talking about. Instead of love thy neighbor as thyself, it becomes love thyself at the expense of thy neighbor. Or love thyself who cares about thy neighbor might be another variant. Oops. It seems to me that some people practicing and promoting pop psychology fall into this. Not exactly what the Buddha was encouraging. The acid test for any of the near enemies is to see if it causes us to be more or less empathetic with fellow sentient beings. Does it join us or part us? And self-centeredness, of course, is exactly what the whole of Buddhism is trying to help us out of. And I'd like you to reflect for a minute and think about maybe some sometime in your life or even these days when you might be practicing a near or far enemy of equanimity or loving kindness. That's really a distinction between empathy and compassion is empathy is just feeling with, but compassion is the strong desire to actually relieve them of the suffering. So if you have one foot in the water with them and you know, you're kind of holding their hand in the water, but you've got one foot on the shore, that is more helpful to them than just drowning right along with them. But having both feet on the shore and standing and watching and going, oh, you know, I see you're drowning. You know, that's not <laughs> compassion. So, I'm just, you know, making really stark contrasts so that you can, I can illustrate it better. Let's next turn our attention to compassion. The obvious opposite feeling the far enemy of compassion, would be cruelty. I don't think I have to explain to you how Hitler and his friends were practicing something as far away from compassion as possible. It's worth noting, by the way, that a lot of the less zealous everyday Nazis were practicing the near enemy of equanimity, indifference. They didn't care what was happening around them in their name. The near enemy of compassion is pity. As with the other near enemies, we can absolutely feel the difference on the receiving end. No one likes to be pitied, but we all appreciate compassion. Why is that? Pity puts the recipient in a one-down position, by definition, breaching the goal of equanimity. It disrespects them. If I've had a terrible accident and I'm in a wheelchair, I'm not comforted by someone saying, there, there, you poor thing. I'd be inspired to heal just enough to stand up and smack them. <laughs> Someone coming from genuine compassion would be sensitive to what would feel good to me. They might ask me what I'd like, offer to get me something, or even just talk to me about something other than my condition. When I broke my foot, I could feel such people's warmth, caring, and respect without even a word said. Ram Dass has spent many hours sitting with dying people and their families. He would often just sit for an hour or two, not saying anything at all. But the quality of his strongly compassionate presence, no doubt felt through mirror neurons, morphic re resonance, and who knows what else in the brain, was palpable. At the end of his time with the dying and their loved ones, they would often thank him profusely and go on about how much he'd helped them. Since he'd just been sitting there doing nothing, 
He was a bit bemused, but he kept on with this practice, and it kept helping people. Again, the key difference is that true compassion joins us with another. Pity subtly separates us. Deep connection with another probably won't heal the dying, but it certainly can help us in almost any circumstance. Sympathetic joy, near and far enemies. Last but not least is sympathetic joy. The far enemy, naturally enough, is jealousy, competitiveness. As a matter of fact, when we feel jealous or competitive with another, the Buddha instructed us to cultivate sympathetic joy as the antidote. Let's talk for a minute about the far enemy before moving on to the near enemy, because even though the far enemy is easier to spot, it can be awfully hard to work through. In that case, we're going to be throwing someone out of our heart, thereby making sympathetic joy less than boundless. Instead, our own heart shrinks. Have you ever felt less than sympathetic joy when someone else just bought a nice car and you couldn't? Or when someone else found a wonderful life partner while you were still unhappily single? Perhaps you have trouble feeling a whole lot of joy, maybe any joy at all, for them. Because let's face it, you don't get to have that same thing. But does their having it keep you from having it? Will your refusing to be happy for them help you to get that car or sweetie? Even if you can't celebrate those things for yourself, How will it hurt anything to celebrate it for them? Heck, at least you get to celebrate it for someone. Lots of people who are frustrated at finding a sweetie get all sappily happy at romantic movies. If we can be happy for some imaginary people getting such things in movies without resenting them for it, why not in real life? How about a case where someone you were competing with beat you out for first place? Of course, it's all the more challenging to be happy for them. I wouldn't try this one right away. But someday you might challenge yourself with this one. You could again ask yourself, now that I already lost first place, how will it help me to resent the person who won it? Just from a purely selfish point of view, resenting them won't get you first place after all. Again, given that you already didn't win, you could ask yourself, How will it hurt anything to celebrate for the winner? Again, at least that way you get to celebrate for someone instead of just feeling crummy. Near enemy. That's hypocrisy. Feigned appreciation of the person who's having some sort of good fortune. I hardly need to explain the difference between feigned sympathetic joy and the real thing. The difficulty here is in honestly admitting to faking it. Perhaps we do this just to make ourselves feel or look like a good person, a good sport. But even if we aren't secretly jealous, the far enemy, we might, for example, be secretly passing judgment on their good fortune not being important or they're not being worthy of it. One conversation with my father many years ago illustrates this near enemy. One day I told him that I'd been accepted for a two-month apprenticeship program at an excellent acupressure clinic in California. They'd never offered such an apprenticeship before, but they liked the idea and were willing to design one for me. I was thrilled. My father smiled faintly. That's nice, honey, he said. He said the right words, but rather than feeling that my joy was shared, 
I felt a pinprick in my balloon of excitement. Poof. Though he was smiling and saying nice words, his response served to separate us, not to join us in loving connection. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.